All right, open the bi- your Bibles today. Uh, we're going to focus on one verse, verse 22 of chapter 3. Today I'm wrapping up the section from Revelation on the messages to the seven churches. John was told to write three things commanded by Jesus in chapter 1. And you can't properly understand the book of Revelation unless you understand and see that there's an outline Jesus gave to it. People do err in their eschatology when they do not apply God's outline to the book of Revelation. John was told to write the things which he has seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. That word hereafter, that phrase in the original language means after what? What came before it? So he's told to write the things which he, have seen, he has seen, which was the vision of Christ in chapter 1, and His exalted glory, His kingly, regal uh, 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 presence. And then he was told to write the things which are, which is the messages to the seven churches, prophetic foreview of the church age. And then in chapter 4, we begin the section of the book, the things which shall be hereafter. Well, after what? After the church age. These are the things that are future. And so we'll find that after this verse in Revelation chapter 3, verse 22, that the church suddenly becomes strangely absent from the book until the very end. Why is she absent? Because the focus of Revelation 4 through Christ's coming in chapter 19 is events here on the earth. And the church isn't here because it's been raptured out. I think that's something that is clear from the entire testimony of Scripture. There's a lot that don't understand or don't believe that, and I think we get in trouble in our study of the Scriptures when we do not allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, when we forget the Jewish context of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, and when we try to assign a meaning to Scripture that is something more than a common sense, plain sense reading. The Bible was written to the common man. It wasn't written to scholars and scribes who had to dig deep into it for a mysterious interpretation so that they could be the conveyors of God's truth. God's truth is conveyed through the common man. Okay, This idea that you have to have a special knowledge or a special degree or a special uh, uh, intelligence to understand God's Word is, is an old heresy called Gnosticism. It was around when John wrote the book of Revelation, this idea that you needed special understanding. No, the understanding comes from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's made available to even the common man if we'll seek Him in faith. Now, there's a lot of things here in Revelation. I was racking my brain over there a minute ago. It was as if the Lord's kind of changed the direction of things in this message today, and I'm okay with that. But... Some would say, don't pause and don't get too detailed here in these passages with hard truth because the people can't understand it. You've got to feed them the milk and not the meat. Well, no, friends. There's too much sucking the milk in the church today. There's too much sucking the breasts. We need the meat. The Bible tells us we need to mature out of this infant stage in our walk with Christ and we need to eat and digest the meat. Those that can eat and digest the meat of God's Word are those that are mature in the Spirit and those that are used by God, especially in dark times. So I think you guys need the meat. And so we're going to get into the meat. We're going to have to stray from the text 
a few times as we move forward in talking about future things because we can't understand what's taking place. In Revelation 4 and 5, we have a very important book, a seven-sealed book. We need to know what that book is before we can properly interpret the rest of Revelation. The Old Testament makes it clear what that book is. We need to know what period of time we're talking about as these judgments fall. The book of Daniel makes that clear. We need to understand that Jesus Christ in His earthly life and ministry and in His future reign actually fulfills the feast that God gave to Israel in Leviticus chapter 23. We need to understand that when God gave Israel seven feasts, God was summing up all of human history in space and time, in a, in a year, in a calendar celebrations. That word feast in the Old Testament means appointment. Israel had seven appointments with God in their, in their uh, calendar year, their religious calendar year. And those appointments prefigured God's appointments with man throughout all of history. So we need to understand that. What are we waiting for now? We're waiting for that feast of trumpets to be fulfilled. That Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is the rapture of the church. And then comes the Feast of Tabernacles. Or, or the, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. The Feast of the Atonement is that period of tribulation. Jacob's trouble. And then we, we look for that Feast of, of Tabernacles. The dwelling of God with men in the Millennial Kingdom. So it's interesting how all those things are fulfilled in Christ. Just like everything in the temple... The tabernacle, the Old Testament laws were a shadow of greater things to come. So we're going to have to look into that stuff as we proceed through the book. So that's the meat of the Word. And if we've had enough milk. I mean, I grew up in churches and my parents can testify of this. We had milk. I'm sick of the milk. I need something more solid. So let's seek God as we look for these things and attempt to digest them. For without the Holy Spirit, we can't even begin to digest the milk, much less the meat. But let's look at verse 22. We are at the end of the messages to the seven churches. We've discussed um, how these messages apply to us. We've seen that they were actual historic churches in John's day. We've seen that they are types of churches that exist at all times throughout all of history. Typology is all throughout the Scriptures. And we've seen looking back you couldn't have known this in the first century. You couldn't have known this in the Reformation because you were on the wrong side of history. But we're on a side of history that has seen Israel regathered as a nation. We've seen Laodicea and lukewarmness take over the church. So we can look back and actually see that these messages were a prophetic foreview of the church age from Pentecost until the rapture. And I want to just focus on this last verse. We've seen this same exhortation at the end of each of these seven letters. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The proof that these were not just singular messages written to singular churches is this statement here. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do we have ears to hear? Not just what Christ said specifically to Ephesus, and Smyrna, and Pergamos, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea, but in general. We've talked about the specifics as we've exegeted the text, but I want to kind of bring it full circle today. This very last passage, the, the, the red letters end here for a time in Revelation. 
that Christ addressed to the church ends here in Revelation until the very end when John is brought back to Patmos and the book is concluded. Only then does Christ address the church again. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This is a concluding admonition. It fittingly sums up not just the message to Laodicea, but the entire seven messages. It is a fitting ending for the things which are. This is the end of the things which are. From henceforth we move into the things which shall be hereafter. Okay? At the end of Revelation, in chapter 22, Jesus, or, or there's a warning issued. There's a warning issued, issued to those who would add to the words of this prophecy and a warning issued to those who would take away from the words of this prophecy. That is a fitting ending to the book of Revelation. And specifically, it refers to the prophecy given in this book. But it's also a fitting ending to the canon of Scripture, to the entire ending of Scripture. Not only woe unto those who would add and subtract from the prophecies in Revelation, but woe unto those who would add and subtract from the Word of God as a whole. Woe unto those. Satan's been involved with that throughout history. Many of us are too ignorant, sometimes willfully ignorant to see it. Many of us are too willfully ignorant to understand that there is a problem with many modern English Bible translations. There's a problem. The name of Jesus is missing. The name of Christ is missing. 22 entire verses in the entire New Testament are missing. The King James Bible and the English Standard Version are not the same. If you think that, then you're ignorant. Sometimes willfully ignorant. Go look up 1 John 5, 7, and 8 in an ESV. And you tell me where the Trinity is because it's not there. But it's here. So these things are not innocent. Satan has tried to add and subtract to, from God's Word. Now, to he who has knowledge, God holds accountable. To whom much is given, much is required. Some of us are ignorant. And God holds us accountable according to the things we know. But we ought to seek these things and try to understand these things. But this is a fitting conclusion not only to this message to Laodicea, but to the entire things which are. He that has an ear, let him hear. We've dealt with the specifics, but what do these seven letters teach us in the church as a whole? What do they teach us in general? I think there's three things we can glean from this. Okay, Three things we can glean from this. Number one, what do these messages do? They give us, the Christian the church, the remnant body, a comprehensive warning. They're a warning to us. That's why preachers never preach from these messages, because they're a warning. Nobody wants to warn the Christian. That might offend them. And if we offend them, they won't put the check in the offering plate. And I as the pastor won't get my six-figure salary and my housing allowance and my life insurance and my medical plan. So God forbid we preach from these Scriptures. They are a comprehensive warning to us, the church. Friends, as the church in the world, we are always in imminent danger. We are in imminent danger from the evil one, from the enemies of the cross, from the world, from the temptation of sin, from apostasy. At all points in times, we are in imminent danger. And if we don't, do not keep our focus upon the one who built the church, we're in danger. What are we in danger of? We're in danger of leaving our first love. 
The church is always in danger of fear, fear of suffering. The church is in danger of doctrinal compromise, like at Pergamos. We're in danger of moral compromise, like at Thyatira. The church is in danger of spiritual deadness, Sardis. We are in danger of capitulation, failing to hold fast, as Philadelphia was exhorted to do in dark times. And we're in danger of lukewarmness. These are real, imminent dangers for the church. And the only victory is in the Word of God, submission to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and looking to the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. We act as if these dangers aren't real in the modern day church. We act as if they're not real. As if they're no temptation. We downplay things. Oh, this is no big deal. This is no big deal. Certain things were no big deal in America 50, 60 years ago and look at the fruition today. Look at the fruition. Real and present dangers. Do we even care? He that has an ear, let him hear the warning that the Spirit gives the churches. It's like the days of Noah today in the church. People are eating, drinking, given in marriage, have no clue. And then the flood came and took them all away. It'll be like that today. People going to church, celebrating Christmas, doing their programs and Sunday schools and conferences, marriage retreats, and then the flood of God's judgment comes and takes them all away. It'll be too late. Do we even care? Do we hear the warning? Because God loves us, He warns us. And God, unlike the filthy, wicked, reprobate, demonic gods of man-made religion, never sends judgment without warning. It says in the book of Amos that God does nothing unless He reveals His intentions through the prophets. God loves us enough to warn us of judgment. The gods of man-made religion do whatever they want to do for no reason whatsoever just to please themselves. And so when people are judged in the mythology of man-made religion, the people had no clue. But that's not the God of the Bible. God's going to judge the church, but He warns us. We've got the warning. Will we not listen? The second thing that these messages teach us as a whole, not only a comprehensive warning, but it teaches us the inevitable decline of the church. Okay, This idea that the church is going to be built up and grow up and go out and conquer the world and make Christian societies and usher in the millennium, that's not the picture of, of these messages. The church, like Israel, like the earth in general, is destined to decline. It needs a Savior. There is no increase in spiritual and political power that ushers in Christ's coming as the Catholic church is always taught. The church degrades as an institution. And the remnant grows small. God sends revival and God does amazing things and His Gospel goes to the end of the earth. But the overall substance of the church is in decline. The church is not on the road of evolution. Everything in our society, they say, is evolution. It gets better, 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 better and more complex, more intricate. Man evolves. The theory of evolution is interesting because it teaches that man in his present state evolved into as we are now physically about, I guess, I think it's like, some say 100,000 years ago, some say 300,000 years ago. But all of a sudden, man stopped physically evolving. 
And so how does the evolutionist deal with that? Well, we evolved up until 300,000 years ago, but now we're still looking the exact same. Well, they'll say, well, no, man stopped physically evolving, and at that point, he started culturally and socially evolving. And that's how they get around. That makes no sense. It's ridiculous. It's also funny that um, man supposedly came on the scene in his present state 300,000 years ago, but yet nobody decided to write down any history until only about 3,000 years ago. So why would man in the same state he is now spend 97,000 years or as many as 297,000 years just not writing anything and then he just decided to write? About 3,000 years ago when history first appears on the scene in written form in terms of extant documents, isn't that funny? That just happens to be the time after, right after the flood. Isn't that interesting how it, the archaeology shows the scriptural timeline? But anyway, the road of evolution says things get better and better and better. The church isn't on the road of evolution. The world isn't on the revolution, on the road to evolution. What is the world on? What is this creation on? Creation's on the road of what I call thermodynamics. Do you know that there were numerous scientific discoveries before Charles Darwin's theory became popular that actually disproved it? One of those was the laws of thermodynamics. These are laws that Einstein said were the most enduring scientific laws that he could even think of were the laws of thermodynamics. The laws of thermodynamics teach us, number one, the conservation of energy. That in this world, in this universe, matter is fixed. There's a fixed amount of matter. It isn't created. It's not destroyed. However, energy is retained. So matter is not created or destroyed, but the total sum amount of energy is fixed. In other words, it can be transformed. Man can transform things, but he can't form it. Okay? Man can transform things, but he can't destroy it. There has to be a creator. That's the law of creatorship. People laugh at that. But the first law of thermodynamics demands that there's something outside of this system that created matter and preserves it. Because matter isn't created or destroyed. It's only transformed. It's the law of the conservation of energy. The second law of thermodynamics takes it a step further. Not only is matter not created or destroyed in this system, but matter tends toward its most... Uh, it, tend, it tends toward its, uh, the most probable state. The most probable state of anything as it exists is toward disorder. So everything, whether it be the human body, a house that's been built, runs down and wears out. Creation is running down. It's wearing out. It tends toward disorder. You can build a brand new fancy temple and stick it in the middle of a dry desert and leave it and not touch it and leave it in its pristine condition without man even coming close to it. Given enough time, that temple will decay and fall to dust. Go travel around the ancient Near East and see the remnants and ruins of the great civilizations. There's nothing left. This happens with the human body, but evolution would teach the opposite. It's the same with the church. The church is on the road of thermodynamics. We can't create the church. We can't destroy the church. Jesus built the church. Man's tried to wipe it out throughout history. He's been able to persecute it, but God's preserved it. Neither is the church evolving 
into a more glorious or complex state. It's moving toward this order. It's wearing out. It's running down. It's showing man to be incapable of saving himself, whether he's in the dispensation of the church, the dispensation of the Garden of Eden, the dispensation of human government under Noah, or the dispensation of the millennial kingdom under Christ. Man always fails. Without God, without a Savior, man fails. In Psalm chapter 39-5, through it says, Man at his best state is altogether vanity. The decline of the church, friends, shows us that man, who's had an encounter with Jesus Christ, who's been given the Holy Spirit, who's been given a commission by Christ and preserved by Christ, man still fails. This idea that the church is the instrument of righteousness and not Christ Himself is foolishness. It's rooted in evolutionary thought, not in biblical thought. Man ultimately fails. We need a Savior. Man failed in the Garden of Eden when he lived by his innocence. He needed a Savior. When man lived by the law and had God's law and knew the consequences of disobedience, he failed. He needed a Savior. When Christ Himself rules and reigns with a rod of iron and people physically see a physical king sitting on a throne in Jerusalem who has all power, man will fail. He'll need a Savior. The church, in many ways, runs down, wears out, and comes to a place of failure. And that's why the church is taken out of the world. The decline of the church. We need a Savior. Israel needs a Savior. The church needs a Savior. We need a rapture. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I just want to share a few verses here. Chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. This is a warning. A general principle that applies in all of human life. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not over much wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? To whom much is given, much is required. It's possible to misuse the things that God has given us and to pay for it with our lives. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 defines it this way for the church, for the believer. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. There's a sin unto death. Physical death. Not eternal damnation, spiritual death. That's not what it's talked about here. This has been written to the church. There's a time in the life of a Christian where his life or his salt has lost its savor. And therefore, for the sake of Christ and the Gospel, his testimony is extinguished. Paul talked about those Corinthians. Some of them were sick and some of them were dead because of how they had brought reproach on the name of Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, if we judge ourselves, but if we won't be judged in this way, but if we are judged in this way, that means sickness and death from God. If we are judged this way, 
then we can rest assured knowing that we're being judged to prevent us from being condemned with the world. So these sins unto death aren't unto eternal damnation. They're unto the preservation of the saint for all eternity. That's the teaching there in 1 Corinthians. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 is a very important principle that applies not only to us as believers, but to the church as a whole. And I want us to think about this as we consider the event of the rapture of the church and why it's there. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing. Friends, salt that lost loses its savor is good for nothing. As Christians, we are salt of the earth. If we lose our savor and our testimony, we're good for nothing in this earth. God may as well take us home. What about the church? Could this principle here in Matthew 5 be applied to the church as a whole? The church in Laodicea. What happens when the church runs out of spiritual gas? Is that possible? Is that where we are at the end of the church age? The church loses its savor. So what does God do? He takes it out. And then who does He turn to to complete the job of the Great Commission? The ones who were cast out before who were restored the nation of Israel. It's very interesting how this comes together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I know I'm kind of, for the sake of time and what we want to do here at the end of the service for Brother Ricky, I'm just going to kind of read these. Listen to this. I mentioned this before. For this cause, Paul is talking about those who had misused and brought reproach on the name of Christ in the Lord's Supper. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. That means they're dead. Their body is dead. The Christian sleeps. His body sleeps to be, resurrect to be resurrected. The ungodly sleep too. Their body sleeps and it's resurrected unto damnation. Daniel chapter 12. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, that means weak, sickly, dead from God, we are chastened of the Lord. This is believers here. Why? That we, believers, should not be condemned with the world. Those Corinthians who were sick and some dead were chastened by God that they would not be condemned with the world. God took them out. He extinguished the testimony that they wouldn't be condemned with the world. The same thing happened with Ephesus. Jesus warned the church at Ephesus, unless you repent, I'll blow out your candlestick. I'll remove your testimony from the world. That's not eternal damnation. That's a removal of testimony. It's a sad thing. When Christ comes for His church, in a sense, it's the Lord removing the testimony of the church from the earth. It's a glorious event for the remnant, but it's sobering. And I believe it's sad. It's like the funeral for a believer. When we go to a funeral, like I went to my grandfather's funeral, a godly man who I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is in the presence of the Lord. That was glorious. But it was sad. Because his testimony was taken. It's gone. It's no longer here. It's the same thing for the church, my friends. We yearn for Christ to come for His church and we believe it's coming. But it also ought to be sobering and sad. Because friends, that's the end of the testimony of the church here on earth in this present dispensation. It's the end. And then God turns to Israel to be able to restore and regain things. So there's a sobering aspect there that I don't think we think of. Is the rapture of the church, the, the great hope of the believer, also the sin unto death for the church? That's something to think about. I don't ever hear that taught. But it's interesting how in God's plan and purpose, the things and the commissions that were given to the church 
aren't completed by the church because the church is in heaven. Revelation 4 and 5, the church is in heaven. Is it mentioned again and to the end? Who completes the job of the Great Commission? Those 144,000 Jewish people. And then we read what Paul says in Romans 11, and we see this as well. Not only a stern warning, but these messages teach us the decline of the church. They also teach us, finally, that the church has not replaced or displaced Israel. The church has not permanently replaced or displaced God's plan and purpose for the nation of Israel. Hasn't happened. Anybody that teaches that is not interpreting Scripture properly. They're failing to interpret Scripture with Scripture. They, in effect, make God a liar. The church is the virgin bride of Christ. Israel is the adulterous wife who will be restored. How is the church the new Israel? How is Israel uh, just forgotten about when God says in the prophets that the the courses of the sun and moon would stop before I would not fulfill my promises to Abraham and his descendants. Romans chapter 11 real quick. I'm going to hurry. Romans chapter 11. This is kind of an interesting passage here. Paul talks about the position, the privileged position of the church. And we learn some things here, not only about the church but Israel. Verse 15, For if the casting away of them, that is Israel, be the reconciling of the world, what shall the reviving of them, Israel, be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken out off, and thou, that is the church, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then the branches were broken off, that is Israel, that I, the church, might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, Israel, take heed that He spare not also thee the church. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise thou also, the church, shall be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted back in, for God is able to graft them, that is Israel, in again. For if thou wert cut off out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, that is Israel, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. This is a warning to the church. That blindness is in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the church be come in. Until God's plan and purpose for building something among the Gentiles is fulfilled. But... Verse 26, once that fullness comes in, what does it say? And so all Israel shall be saved. For it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them and I shall take away their sins. We're in the times of the Gentiles, but when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then Israel will be saved. I believe there's a point in time in the future when the entire nation living at that time 
will wake up and be saved. So what do we learn from this passage? We learn that there is a potential disenfranchisement of the church. Paul warns that the the wild branches could be cut off and the natural branches put back in. This is in God's plan and purpose and covenant. And we know by reading this that God cut off Israel, turned to the Gentiles, and that He's going to turn back to Israel again. We know these things by reading this Scripture. So the church has not replaced or displaced Israel in God's plan. They're two separate programs in God's plan. Doesn't mean people are saved different ways. No one's ever been saved any other way than by faith in Messiah. That's the only way you've ever been saved. Whether you were Adam and Eve in the garden, looking forward, whether you were Israel in the time of Zacharias the priest, in the time of, uh, uh, of, of, of the Savior's birth, or whether you are today. No man's ever been saved other than by looking for Messiah. But the, the church in Israel are two programs in God's plan of redemption. And the church has not replaced or displaced them. This is evident from these messages to the seven churches and where they are in the book of Revelation and where we go after these chapters. Consider something. I I took us to a a book last week that nobody ever preaches from, Song of Solomon. I'm going to take you to a book just briefly today that no one even preaches from today. Jesus never quoted from it. Interesting. There's one book in the Old Testament that Jesus and His disciples never quoted from. Does anybody know what it was? In fact, the name of God's not even mentioned in this book. Not even once. It's a book of Esther. But it is God's Word. Why? What does it show us? It shows us God's divine hand of providence in the preservation of who? Israel. But in the book of Esther, there was a queen, a Gentile queen, who was not content to be a queen. She was called by the king and refused to listen. So what happened? The king put her away. But then there was another queen who was humble. Another queen who satisfied the king. And she who? A Gentile? No. A Jewess was made queen in the place of the Gentile. I just want to read real quick a couple verses from the book of Esther. I just think this is kind of a neat picture of what's happening here at the end of the church age. In Esther chapter 1 verse 17 it says this, for this deed, the, the, the king's counselors, the Persians king, Persian king's counselors are warning him because his wife has ignored him and made a public spectacle in a sense. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes. When it shall be reported, the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Then look at verse, chapter 2, verse 17. And the king loved Esther, who was a Jew, above all the women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen a Jew instead of Vashti, the Gentile. Isn't it interesting that in the day and time we live today, the king is calling the Gentile queen, the Gentile bride, the church. And she's not coming. She's not listening. Christ is on the outside of the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's not the door of man's heart. That's the door of the church in Revelation 3. Christ is on the outside calling and the queen refuses to listen. When the queen won't listen, she's replaced with one who will. When the church loses its savor, it's replaced with the Jewess, the witnesses that God will seal from the nation of Israel. 
It's interesting. It, it, it occurred in a day and time when God intended to preserve the Jewish people and demonstrate His reign over them, and it's going to occur again when God plans to demonstrate His reign and rule over the Jewish people and restore them in the last days. At the end of chapter 3, after this verse, the church disappears from the earth. The focus of God's plan and purpose on earth shifts to the elect of Israel as the church stands on the sidelines in heaven. Where is the church during the events of Revelation 4 through 19? On the sidelines. Standing on the sidelines, just like all those players do with the coach in a football game. It's a joyous thing to watch, it's a blessing, but we're not on the field. I'm going to show you this when we get into chapter 5. There's a little pronoun there. A little pronoun that proves the church is in heaven. And guess what the modern versions do with that pronoun? They mess it up. And you cannot, you cannot justify that with the, Greek and he, with the Greek text. can't be done. These things aren't innocent, folks. It's a glorious event that the church will, will go to meet Christ in the air, but it's sad and sobering because it's, we're, we're coming off the field and we're going to the sidelines. Glorious yet sad. In Matthew chapter 24, I've heard this verse misapplied time and time and time again. It's kind of funny, especially with missions. I've heard this misapplied to missionaries today. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come. I've heard people say, I'm so excited about going to the mission field. Maybe I'll witness to the last person. And when I've done and they've accepted Christ, then Christ is going to come. It's the end. Come on. That's not going to be us that takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. We'll see later in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, that things stand still for a time and God seals His servants in their foreheads from the tribes of Israel. Those witnesses. And then the very next vision John sees is an innumerable multitude of Gentiles that have been martyred and come out of great tribulation. The fruit of Israel's witnesses. The gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. We've started the job, praise God. And the church has had the privileged position of taking the gospel all over the world. But the job's not yet done. It's the backup. It's like the backup QB coming in and finishing the job that the star quarterback started before he was injured. Israel's going to come in and finish the job. Complete the Great Commission. I believe this. And the fruit of the preaching of Israel's witnesses we could learn from. Because the fruit wasn't platforms and it wasn't effectiveness. It was Gentile converts. It was people. People who give their lives for the Gospel. That was the fruit. So the things which are the church age. Now, we're going to turn to the things which shall be hereafter. Revelation chapter 4. From now on, we're going to be talking about the period of tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Armageddon and the coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. And the church isn't going to pop up again until the end of the book. Christ isn't going to address the church again until the end of the book. It's interesting because when Christ is writing 
throughout these messages. It says it time and time again, just like our text today. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It's a little interesting exhortation in Revelation chapter 13. Here we are in the middle of the tribulation when that great beast, the Antichrist, is described and his mark is revealed and a warning is given. Look at what is said in Revelation 13.9. If any man have an ear, let him hear. Period. There is no to the churches. There is no what the Spirit saith. If any man have an ear, let him hear. What's absent? The church. Look at the end of Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 16. We're back. John's back in Patmos. The last message of the Bible. I, Jesus, have sent Mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. That's the next time the church is addressed. We'll see in chapter 5 that the church is in heaven. Those, those representatives that sing that song says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, for Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's the church on the sidelines. And then it's the church that reigns with Christ. A privileged position in that millennial kingdom and in that eternal new heavens and new earth. So praise God for that. Let's labor faithfully. Let's have an ear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And when Christ comes for His church, may we not be ashamed. But may we be happy to be with our Savior on that glorious yet sad and sobering day. God's going to do what He said He was going to do. He's going to do it His way. It's destiny per se. Man can't alter it. Satan can't alter it. The demons can't alter it. The little horn, that man of sin can't alter it. The Pope can't alter it. Obama can't alter it. Obamacare can't alter it. Nelson Mandela couldn't alter it. And the kingdom of the beast can't alter it. God's going to do what He said. The church can't alter it. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. God bless you all. We'll get into Revelation 4 next week. And then I believe on the 21st we're going to do something different. And then we'll dive in uh, at the end of the year and see where God takes it. See what God says. I retain my promise, folks. I'm going to make this promise again. Before we end this study, there will be a Sunday when I cover an entire chapter in a single sitting. I promise you. I promise you. It's going to happen. Just be patient. Amen.